This is Home on the Dot. Welcome to the Columbarium. This is what it sounds like to make an offering to the dead. Removing fish, rice, and fruit from a plastic bag. Making a cup of coffee for the deceased and ensuring the chopsticks are ready. This is the sound of one of our student producers, To Jiahan, and his family offering a symbolic meal to his deceased grandparents at the Tuopayo Siu de Shantang Columbarium. It is one of many such places around the island that provide a final resting place for Singaporeans. The main hall of the Columbarium is filled with ancestral tablets, which line the walls in rows upon rows. Ancestral tablets are red and about 30 centimeters tall. Each has the name of the deceased on it. When I go to the columbarium with my extended family, we pack food from home and lay out a meal on the communal tables in front of my grandparents' tablets. After the food has been laid out, we burn three joysticks, one after the other. This is the traditional method of keeping time before the dead are considered finished with their meal, and each joystick takes about 10 minutes to burn. While waiting, we sit around the open common area reading the newspaper, and making small talk. I've even brought homework before to the columbarium. After the joysticks burn down, we eat the food in the common area before we all go our separate ways. This is Home on the Dot, the podcast from the National University of Singapore about the power and meaning of home in today's world. I'm Chris McMorin. In this episode, Jahan, a recent NUS graduate in Japanese studies, talks about columbaria. For those unfamiliar with the word, it's a building that stores the ashes of the dead. Instead of the horizontal grid of a cemetery, where gravestones mark the final resting place of those buried beneath, picture a vertical grid, a wall of small niches that each hold an urn. Then picture wall after wall of such niches, all housed in a single building that stands multiple stories tall. In some columbaria, the overall impression is of a library or a building full of safety deposit boxes. For the uninitiated, it can feel quite impersonal. So what does the columbarium have to do with home? Over the years teaching my course on home, I've read some great papers about columbaria. One thing students emphasize is how people gather at the columbaria to share a meal with their relatives. It may not be a joyous occasion, like a birthday party or a Lunar New Year reunion dinner at a relative's home, but the columbarium provides a space for important events that cement family ties. Students also emphasize how people decorate the otherwise bare niches that contain the ashes of the relatives. They bring photographs, flowers, and when possible, small decorations, like miniature bowls of fishball soup made of plastic, 
all to personalize these spaces. Just as we make a house into a home by personalizing it, hanging personal photos, painting the walls a favorite color, using furniture that has been in the family for years, the living personalize columbarium niches to reflect the personalities of the deceased. Students point out that in land-scarce Singapore, the needs of the living and the dead are often in direct conflict, particularly when cemetery plots are exhumed and the remains are cremated and moved to columbaria in order to make way for new roads and new homes. But most intriguing is the way columbaria resemble the high-rise public housing blocks that are home to more than 80% of the Singaporean population. Both involve the same vertical, compact solution to a lack of space on this tiny island. Both lead to a standardized final product, so that from a distance it may be difficult to distinguish one apartment or one columbarium niche from another. However, both spaces become deeply meaningful to the people who use them and make them their own. Both are logical, space-saving solutions, making everyone equal in both life and death. Indeed, the reality for most people in Singapore is not just high-rise living, but high-rise dying. In this episode, Jahan introduces us to the columbarium. He provides a brief history of burial practices in Singapore and discusses policies that have drastically altered these practices. They have led to more Singaporeans finding an eternal resting place in a columbarium instead. He shares his own columbarium experiences, as well as those of his parents, who explain what they do on a typical visit. Then he speaks with Bernard Chen, a Singaporean funeral director on a mission to encourage people to think more proactively and positively about death, instead of treating it like a taboo topic. We all die eventually. Planning for that fact can have profound impacts on how we think about life and how we think about home. Stay tuned. Prior to 1857, the colonial government in Singapore exerted little control over the burial places of the local communities. John Turnbull Thompson, then the governor surveyor, described Singapore thus. A few days will suffice to convince strangers in Singapore that native burial grounds are to be met with in all directions. These are generally much neglected and are overgrown with weeds and scrub, and often they are desecrated by the unsympathizing Christian, Mahomedan, or pagan as may be. Roads are recklessly carried right through the bones of the original native settlers, and crowded streets now traverse the sacred places where many of the Singapore primeval worthies are laid in their last homes. Such sites were often to be seen of fresh human bones and coffins and humours sticking out of the sand by the roadsides. A century later, the newly post-colonial government still had to contend with cemeteries in all directions. It made decisive moves to take land occupied by burial grounds, especially of Chinese communities, in order to build public housing. The government was firm, but made concessions such as delaying exhumation and providing alternative, smaller spaces for the relocation of graves. In other words, some cemeteries had to be moved to make space for the homes of the living. At the same time, the state began to encourage cremation. Despite the fact that it was rarely done by the majority Chinese population, it was seen as the only viable solution to a land-scarce nation hoping to grow both its economy and population. According to Ministry of Community Development Statistics, before 1965, 89.8% of Chinese dead were buried, while 10.2% were cremated. By 1988, only 31.9% were buried, while 68.1% were cremated. 
This was a major shift encouraged by the state and intended to make more efficient use of Singapore's limited space. Geographer Brenda Yeo writes that this encouragement was not done in a confrontational manner. She cites three main factors which resulted in this drastic switch. Firstly, the weakening hold of traditional beliefs concerning death. Secondly, the drastic increase in availability of crematoria and columbaria. Thirdly, funeral managers who were perceived as experts on burial practices were able to ameliorate this trust in the Chinese community. Before this project, I knew nothing about how the dead were managed in Singapore. All I knew was that I go with my family to the columbarium a few times every year. In recent years, my mother has been very understanding of the university workload. She allows me to pass on columbarium visits when I'm busy. And even when I make the effort to go at least once a year, I'm spared the preparation that my mother and her three sisters undertake before each visit. We go to the columbarium on their death days, during Qingming or Tomb Sweeping Day, during the Hungry Ghost Festival, and also over the Chinese New Year period. We think about what we should cook. Grandma and Grandpa have four children, so some things are already fixed. My eldest aunt is in charge of cooking the rice and bringing Joss paper. Second aunt will buy the chicken and duck and bring the wine and tea. For my mother and fourth aunt, they might cook vegetables and fish or bring fruits. The table space at the columbarium is limited, so we have to squeeze with other people. If we're early, we can get a space right in front of my grandparents' plaques. Otherwise, we have to set up a bit further away, even on the next table. Sometimes we stand around if it seems like someone is about to leave. It's quite an informal and awkward way of negotiating space, uncannily similar to how we secure tables at Singapore's famous hawker centres. We set up the food and then pour the wine and tea. We also prepare a cup of coffee for my grandmother, my ama, because she drinks coffee, while my grandfather, my akong, doesn't. My eldest aunt is most familiar with the traditions, so she is usually the one to light the required candles and joysticks as an offering to the keeper of the dead and invite the spirit of my grandparents out to partake in the meal we have prepared. Ma makes the effort to ensure the food is hot and fresh. Fruits like grapes will be washed, rice will be packed separately and covered with aluminium foil. Hot water is available at the columbarium to make a hot cup of coffee for the dead. We lay it all out like a proper meal. For me, the way we lay out food reminds me of home. The care and effort that my family puts into the preparation is their way of showing filial piety and remembering our ancestors. But coexistence with these acts of filial piety is the greater state logic and population sentiment that is cold. I spoke to Bernard Chen, who finished his master's in history at Oxford. Before beginning his career, as a funeral director at 29 years old. So think about this problem. Well, if you're lying in a hospital, let's say my mother is lying in a hospital, she's about to pass on. The nurses will do all they can to render care and concern to this person 
who's lying on the hospital bed. Wiped her clean, and feed her food, and make sure that medicine is administered to her on a regular basis. The moment she dies, she's no longer human. She's a statistic. She takes up the hospital bed, and therefore, she has to be taken away as soon as possible so that I can release the bit. Is this the kind of Singapore you want your children to grow up in? Absolutely not. Last year, Mount Vernon Columbarium closed to make way for the new Bidadari public housing project. The only public cemetery in Singapore, Chua Chu Kang Cemetery, continues to exhume graves a mere 15 years after burial, a policy that began in 1998. Deathscapes like columbariums and cemeteries continue to be stigmatized and suffer from not-in-my-backyard syndrome. But not making the date a priority has consequences. If you want a reference point, Hong Kong is the best reference point for Singapore. If we do not meet the challenges that we are confronted with at this point in time within the context of the aging population, we would be faced with the problem of Hong Kong, such as you have to wait before your loved one gets cremated, anywhere between two weeks to eight weeks. After which you have to wait for a columbarium space between six months to three years. Are we going to end up like Hong Kong in the next 20 or 30 years time when one in four Singaporeans 65 years and above, which is 2030, which is the population planning parameters of Singapore, where will we be? If my mother passed on today, does she need to stay in the mortuary for the next two weeks before someone from a funeral company picks her up? Not because nobody wants to take my business, but because they don't have the resources. Is this a valid concern? Yes. I'm ashamed to say that I had never thought about these issues, but I would hate to have to wait on funerary rites for my parents' inevitable passing. Even as Bernard confronts me with these issues face to face, I still find it a difficult topic to think about. In a modern society like Singapore, whether it's pragmatic or otherwise, there is a complacency inherent within this concept called life and living. You go about each day not expecting that death is going to knock on your door anytime soon. And precisely because of that, there is a neglect, there is an ignorance of any issues pertaining to dying, death and the funeral profession. So do I blame the policymakers? No, I can't. And it's not fair. Because there is a perception or a misconception that the priorities of the living are more important than priorities of the dead. Bernard points out that the dead affect the living in many ways. For the living left behind, their pain and sorrow needs to be dealt with sensitively by a funeral industry that is professional and human. Beyond that, it is also about remembering our history and the people who have contributed to our nation's development. So what kind of home, what kind of sense of home and belongingness, what kind of sense of identity are you trying to encourage? As I mentioned, how a country, how a nation state, how a society deal with death in its needs speaks volumes of the values of that particular society and a particular nation. Having laid out the problem so clearly, I asked Bernard about his work and also the future he envisions for Singapore's policies on death. For one of the most educated population in this world, Singapore is one of the most death illiterate societies. So where is all this work going to? Building Singapore's soft power from a citizenry point of view. Encourage greater public policy discussion on the funeral profession, dying, palliative care, death in Singapore. And most importantly, to equip all Singaporeans with basic information and knowledge of what to do when a death occurs. For me, one that includes and integrates the dead into our needs. And I think this is something that is meaningful and it's a work that requires us to change attitudes 
change worldviews of the people through education, through different practices. And over time, with each succeeding generation, people will come to see the importance of the work that we do. So the work that I do usually do not have a very immediate KPI. But when you eventually face a death in your family, you eventually come to recognize the importance of why I'm here for you. And that again goes back to the fundamental and most ironic hypocrisy that we have all displayed. That there is no plans to build a mortuary school. But when push comes to shove, I'm dying to get a funeral director who can lead me in the right direction. I have never seen a more unprepared sector in Singapore society than the funeral profession. And it's especially ironic and in Chinese very fengzi, even that our government pride itself on long-term planning. Where's the long-term planning in death? Long-term planning for death is concurrently a long-term strategic planning for the population at large, for the living, for generations that will come after you and generations that have not yet even been born. Bernard is resolute that more can be done by the state to address the issues surrounding death. He thinks that if we cared about it enough, then issues like land constraint will become convenient excuses that are easily addressed. If we could only look past antiquated cultural inhibitions and embrace our heritage and history. I find Bernard's views strong, even controversial, and deeply thought-provoking, even if I have my doubts about their prescience and practicality. As a child, I remember I stared curiously at funerals at the void deck as we walked past from our block to the bus stop. My mother always scolded me and told me not to look. Why? I would ask. I don't know, she would reply. It's not respectful. Why? I would ask. She had no answer. I wish curious children would be invited to ask questions about funerals. I wish they were welcomed, and perhaps the grieving family would tell a child about the things that the deceased had done for them. Like Bernard, I hope that death can be spoken of openly, in a healthy manner of acceptance, rather than hushed up and ignored. Before I spoke to Bernard, I had scarcely considered that death was so intimately tied up with the living. How we treat them truly reflects on our own social values. Are the dead merely a public hygiene concern and a waste of space? As for myself, I will begin by trying to broach the topic of death with my own family and try to pave the way towards a more open approach to death. In his interview, Bernard asks what kind of home, what kind of identity Singaporeans want to create. And he makes it clear that the way we think about and plan for death says a great deal about how we think about home. On this tiny island nation, the living have to find ways to coexist with the dead, or we threaten to destroy this place we call home. When we make offerings to the dead, we demonstrate our continued ties to them. We coexist as best we can and make them a part of our lives. In fact, such ritual practice can continue to keep us together. One of my students may have put it best when he said, The columbarium is built to house the dead, but when the living gather there in remembrance, they bring it to life. But we have to prepare now as a nation in order to keep the dead in our lives in the future. This episode was written and produced by Toh Jahan, with sound design by Johan Tan and David Chu. To hear more about Jahan, check out the Economical Rice podcast, hosted by Danny Krisnanto Kordi. 
It's a great interview podcast based in Singapore, which will feature Jahan later this year. And if you want to hear more information about Columbarium in Singapore, check out 99% Invisible. It's one of my absolute favorite podcasts out there. And in mid-2019, they did an episode called Life and Death in Singapore. It's episode number 359. In it, they spend a lot of time talking about the history and design of Columbaria. Special thanks today to Jahan's family for sharing their reflections about Columbarium. And to Bernard Chen for encouraging us to think more deeply and proactively about death. Check out our blog to access transcripts for all our episodes, as well as photos and links to news and academic articles on every topic. The address is tinyurl.com slash home on the dot. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Home on the Dot. And as always, thanks for listening.